chapter 3, if you will. Revelation chapter 3. And uh, you can just kind of get yourself all set up, get your study sheet, get your Bible there at Revelation chapter 3. Now, uh, most of the other verses that we're going to be going to this morning as we cross-reference through the Word of God will be up on the screen behind me. So you can just kind of keep your place here in Revelation and get all the notes down. And hopefully that will be of, of help to you. But if you're a guest with us this morning, again, we want to say thank you for choosing to, to worship with us here at First Baptist this morning. We've been working our way through the book of Revelation, and at this pace, the events of Revelation will take place before we actually get to, to teach them. But we're in Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus is in the midst of writing seven letters to seven churches that were found in Asia Minor at the end of the Apostle John's life. He's the writer of the book of Revelation. But these are letters that our Lord dictated to the Apostle John. They were addressing real needs of real things that were going on in that church or in these various churches. But as you put them into the context of the whole of the book of Revelation, what becomes very apparent is that what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing for us here is He is bringing us through seven periods of church history that pick up where the book of Acts leaves off and take us all the way up to the rapture. And we've been working our way through those, and we've spent quite a bit of time talking about those last two letters, the last two periods of church history, a period called the Philadelphian church period, which was approximately 1500 to 1900 A.D., moving into the Laodicean church period in that last letter, which picks up around 1900 this century and will take us all the way up to the rapture of the church. Now what becomes apparent as you begin to look at these letters is that there was not a greater period of history than the Philadelphian church period. For the church of Jesus Christ, there was not a greater period than that period from approximately 1500 to 1900. Nowhere in this entire letter does he ever give even a hint of a condemnation to this group. It is all positive things that were taking place. And we have gone back in recent weeks and we have looked at the power of God that was manifest on this planet during the Philadelphian church period. A time like no other period where the, the door for missions opened up. In fact, it's called the golden age of missions. The power of God was on people's lives so that in the preaching of the Word of God, people would, in church buildings, hold on to the very pillars themselves, thinking that they might, from that room, drop into the pit of hell. I mean, this was the kind of thing that was taking place, but when you come to Laodicea, it is a church where he does not commend the church, not even for one thing through the entire letter. That's the period of time that we find ourselves living in in 1997. In fact, we were in the last days of that church period, a church period where Jesus looks at it and says, I can't find one thing to commend you for. The church in Philadelphia, the word Philadelphia itself is a, a good indication of what was taking place there. The word Philadelphia, of course, and we know this by the name of the city in our own country and even the, the city that this church is located in. The word Philadelphia means brotherly love. It was a time where the chief characteristic 
of that period of time, Jesus said it was love for a brother. And that love caused people to leave their homeland, to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, to give people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereas the word Laodicea means the rights of the people. It, the chief characteristic is not a love for brothers. The chief characteristic is love of self. In fact, it's even repeated in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, where it talks about that in the last days, we are living in them, the last days of the Laodicean church period. It, it says in the last days, perilous times shall come. And the number one, the chief characteristic of those perilous last days, it says that men shall be lovers of their own, what? Their own selves, not concerned about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're concerned, and we have a major preoccupation in the Laodicean church period, in the church of Jesus Christ, preoccupation with self. And what you hear in the Laodicean church period, in light of all of the things that the Lord has said about who we are as helpless, hopeless sinners, what you hear in the church of Laodicea is everyone talking about their self-worth and self-esteem and self uh, self-confidence and self-reliance and self-sufficiency and, and self-gratification. All, all of it, It's a total preoccupation with self. And so what we've begun to do, recognizing that we are living in that Laodicean church period, we began to, to go to the letter written to the church of that Philadelphian period and see what was it about that church that caused the power of God to be unleashed upon that, that, that period? What were the characteristics that the Lord Jesus Christ looked out of heaven and, and saw and said, I'm telling you, that's the way it's supposed to be. And so he begins to just unleash his power upon them. And we've begun to work our way through what I, I've been able to, to see five factors, five key things that must take place in our lives as Laodiceans, if we're ever going to go back and have a Philadelphian experience, what we're calling a new Philadelphian lifestyle, how, how we can live in the Philadelphian church period, even though we're, we're living in the, the Laodicean age. And last week, as we've begun to work our way through the first two factors, we just, we just kind of backed way, way, way up. And we talked about the fact that before any, we'll be able to apply any of these factors to our lives, we talked about the fact that something needs to happen, first of all, to our hearts. And this is probably where we should have started in this, this whole thing as we came to the letter of Philadelphia, but to be quite honest about it, I didn't see it. But I'll just tell you, as we were working our way through those factors and, and sometimes feeling like I'm a Laodicean standing up here, shooting off information to Laodiceans that maybe we needed to just say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Are we really? Are we really concerned about this? Or are we just doing a Laodicean thing? Coming to church, filling in study sheets, getting more and more information that does nothing more than just swell our heads because we know all of these things, but they're not really a part of our life. And so what we, we began to do is just talk about, do we have the heart? to move out of Laodicea. And, and we, we, we talked about the fact that until we come to the point to where we have a, a broken heart, 
because of the broken down condition of the church of Jesus Christ in this Laodicean church period. You see, the goal of the church, it says in the book of Ephesians, is unto Him be glory in the church. Listen, in the Laodicean church period, He is not glorified. It is a broken down church. And until we come to the point to where the lukewarmness that He talks about is characteristic of the Laodicean church period, until we come... To, to the point to where that lukewarmness affects us the way that it affects Him. Do you remember how it affects Him? Revelation 3.16, if you need it. What it says is it makes Him want to puke. It makes Him want to spew that church out of His mouth. And, and what we really came to last week is until we get to the point to where Laodicea is that sickening to us, we're probably not going to make it out of Laodicea. David said in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he said, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. And you see, if that's, if that's all that, it, that was involved in getting out of Laodicea, I mean, just you know, sacrifice something. Just follow this, you know, this prescribed religious... Ritual, you know, go to go to church three times a week, uh, have daily devotions and pray and and give your offering every Sunday. Man, if that was it, it, it'd be done, right? Because we all do that, and yet we've all got a major dose of Laodicea in, in us as, as well. So, I mean, if that's all it was, no problem. Here it is. I'll make that sacrifice. But he says in verse seventeen, the sacrifices of God, the, the sacrifices God's looking for are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. You see, that's when it's going to happen for us. When our hearts are broken. David said in Psalm 69 and verse 9, the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. And you see, until the reproaches of Laodicea fall upon us, we're probably just going to stick right where we are, real comfortable in Laodicea. We talked last week about being filled with the Spirit. When we're filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit is grieved, we'll be grieved. Our problem in Laodicea is we claim we're filled with the Spirit, but we just never get grieved at the condition of the church in these last days that does not bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and I'll tell you what, what, what really concerns me. And, uh, and I feel like I, I, I need to, to say this. It, it concerns me for me. It concerns me for you. It, it concerns me for our en entire church. And that is, you can trace a pattern of something throughout history. And, and that is that there have been numerous times where God has given to a particular group of people the opportunity of coming out of one existence and, and moving in to another. But what you find historically, what you find biblically, is when that option was given to the people, it was always a minority that went out. For example... God gave the nation of Israel the promise of their own land. 
He promised it. Okay? It's called the promised land. Okay? God Himself, holy, omnipotent God, promised this people a land. And finally, he, what He does is He says, I want you to get 12 spies, and I want you to go spy out this land that I have promised to you. Ten out of the twelve spies go over into the land and they begin to look at that thing. Oh, we'll never do it. Oh, we're never going to make it in there. And God said, you're right. You won't. And they didn't. Those ten, they didn't. Now, let me just ask you. Had you been, would you have made it into the promised land had you been one of the twelve spies? Because only two of them did. Later on, the nation of Israel is in Babylonian captivity. And finally, God provides for their release. Oh, praise the Lord, they're finally going to get out of this hell hole, which is what Babylon is. They're finally going to be able to get out. Oh, wonderful. You know what? Most of them didn't go. You know what happened? They were held captive in Babylon, and while they were there, Babylon had gotten in to them. And you know what? After a period of time, all of a sudden Babylon just didn't seem that bad. Let me ask you, would you have been one to be reinstated to the homeland? Had you been one of the millions in Babylonian captivity? Because when the opportunity was given, only 50,000 did. Now somehow the, the offer was extended for a gathering of disciples to, to wait for the promise of the Spirit in the upper room after Jesus ascended back to the, the Father. And I don't know exactly sure what, what all the, the invitation in, included, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that after the resurrection of Christ, He appeared to over 500 brethren at one time. And I'll just bet you, they were all invited to the gig in the upper room. Now let me ask you, would you have been one of the disciples in the upper room? Had you been one of the 500 to witness the resurrection? Because only 120 did. You ever thought about that? In those situations, would you? Would you have been one? To make it out. And, and let, me, let me just show you how we know what we would do there. Because what God's doing, I believe, in this fellowship, what I believe He's doing right now, is God is showing us the way out. Most Laodiceans, guys, don't know anything about the Laodicean church, period. Now, somehow, God in His grace, not because we're great, not because we're smart, Somehow, in God's grace, He's allowed us to begin to see some things that are characteristic of this period of church history. And He's, he's showing us, here's the way out, y'all. You don't have to live there. It's a choice. Here's the way out. And now we're all faced with, with a real question. And that is, will you be one to move out of the emptiness and lukewarmness of Laodicea and into the blessing and power of Philadelphia.
the door is open. You see, we're living in a period of time where the door is closed. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. It's closed. Jesus says, I'm knocking. But you know what? I'll open that door. If you do. If you open the door of your heart, man, I'll make it something different. You can still, you can have a Philadelphian life in a Laodicean church period. You see, it's a choice. It's the same choice it's always been. And folks, listen, we're no different than the 12 spies. We're no different than the nation of Israel in Babylonian captivity. We're no different than the group of people that had the choice to be in the upper room. We look at all those and say, oh man, I wouldn't miss that for the world. Will you miss this? God's providing us an opportunity. And we, we saw that there's five factors that have got to be true. Something's got to change if we're going to have that type of life in this Laodicean period. First thing that we saw has to do with the Christ we know. The Christ we know. The, the Christ that we know in the Laodicean church period is not the Christ that the Philadelphian church period knew. This was a Christ that was holy, that was true. When he spoke, that was it. And he had the key of David. <clears throat> but not only the Christ we know and, and changing our, our view of him and seeing him in all of his splendor, and all of his glory and majesty and power, but secondly, the, the life we live. And, and this is where the, the broken down condition of Laodicea is so recognized. We are so far from having the type of life that Jesus can look at and say, wow, hey, you're down there and you're keeping my word and you aren't, you're not denying my name. You're actively involved in the work of the Lord and because of that, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. And you see, those, those first two factors, guys, they're, they're, they're so, so very key. That's why it's taken us so long to get through them. You see, if we don't get to the point to where the Christ that we know in Laodicea is like the Christ they knew, if our lives, in light of that, if they never change, if we just keep living a Laodicean life, we'll never know that power. But let me tell you, when the Christ we know is holy and true, and He's the key of David, when the life we live is evidenced by our <clears throat> participation in the work of the Lord through the, the vehicle that God is using in, in this age, and we're holding fast to this book, and we're keeping this book, and we're not denying His name, let me tell you, there are some promises that begin to come. The, the, the thing that made the Philadelphian church period what it was is they had some promises that were given to them. And if we're ever going to experience Philadelphian life in this Laodicean church period. These are the same promises that we must be able to hold. The third thing, the promises we hold. The promises we hold. And and listen, when the Christ we know is like the Christ in verse 7, and the life that we live is evidenced by the same things that were evidenced in the life of these Philadelphians, then the promise of verse 8 will be ours. He says... Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. And what this is, is the promise of the key of David, which takes you back to the middle of, of verse 7, where Jesus says that he is the one that hath the key of David. And then he goes on to define in, in verse 7 just what that means. He that openeth 
and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. In other words, he is the one with the authority. He is the one with the access. When he opens the door, it's open. And there isn't any person on this planet, once he's opened a door, that is ever going to shut a door that the Lord Jesus Christ has opened. And when he shuts the door, the same exact thing is true. When he shuts it, it's shut, baby. And there isn't anyone on this planet who's going to do anything to open it. And what this whole thing is, is the fulfillment of a prophecy that we saw in Isaiah chapter 22, in verse 22. We looked at this several weeks ago, where it talks about a guy by the name of Eliakim. And Eliakim was the man. I mean, this guy was it. He was the one who had the key to all of the treasures of the king. Okay? And it says in Isaiah 22 and verse 22 that the key of David was laid on his shoulder. In other words, the access to those treasures, the treasures of the king, were placed under his authority. And we saw the fact that Eliakim is a perfect picture of what Jesus was talking about. And this verse is not going to be on the screen. You may want to refer to it. In fact, why don't we just do that? We'll come back to Revelation. Matthew chapter 13. Eliakim is a perfect picture of what Jesus was talking about in this parable. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. When he said this, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. And listen, that man that verse 44 is talking about that man was the Lord Jesus Christ and he said in verse 38 of the same chapter that the field is the world and you know what the treasure was in that field that treasure was people and it says and for the joy thereof Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2 says that Jesus for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, that is, he sold all that he had. He gave his life to buy the redemption of the whole world, the whole field. And for all who will come to him, you know what he'll do? He'll hide them. He'll hide them in himself. And you see, Jesus is the one with the key of David. He is the one who has authority. Matthew 28, verse 18. He said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He's the one with the key to the treasures that are in the field. Okay? Now go back to Revelation chapter 3. You see, that's what's behind what Jesus is saying to the church of Philadelphia. He says, I'm the one with the key of David, in verse 7. And, and then he, he says, and behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. You know what was so key about 
the Philadelphian church period is the Lord Jesus Christ was giving him, giving that church period his authority and his access into the treasures of the field, the, the world. He was giving to them the key of David on their shoulders that unlocked the doors. Now, there's two very important things you need to see about how the New Testament refers to open doors. First of all, the New Testament consistently refers to open doors as an opportunity to share the gospel or an opportunity to evangelize. It's an opportunity to share the gospel or an opportunity to evangelize. And secondly, the New Testament consistently reveals the fact that doors are God's responsibility. They're God's responsibility. Now let me, let me show you what, what I'm talking about. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas had, had been on their first missionary journey, and they, they come back to their, their home church, the church at Antioch, the church that had sent them out. And it says in Acts chapter 14 and verse 27, And when they were come, okay, now the they is Paul and Barnabas, when they had come back to Antioch and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he, that is God, had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there you see the the point that I'm trying to get you to see about these open doors. It's God taking the responsibility of opening the opportunities for the gospel. Then in Acts chapter 16, Paul is in the midst of his second missionary journey. Now he's traveling with Silas. And it says in Acts chapter 16 and verse 1, that they pick up Timothy, and Timothy joins the missionary team. And then in verse 3, it says that they prepared him for the ministry of evangelism, if you will. And verse 4, they, they head out, and verse 5 says, And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Messiah, they essayed to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Messiah, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And do you understand what's, what's happening here? They had been preaching the gospel in, in Galatia. And the, the door had, had been open there, and that's why they were there. But all of a sudden, the door closed. And so they attempted to go into Asia. But as they were trying to get into Asia, the door wasn't open. They tried to get into Bithynia. But again, the door wasn't open. So you see, they were, they were in the east... And the door closed. They try to go north. The door isn't open. They try to go to the south. And the door isn't open there. And so there's only one direction left for them to go. And it's west. And so they begin to go that way to see if the door is going to be open there. And they go west as far as they can possibly go until they run out of land. And they end up on the coastal city of Troas. And it was there that God gave to Paul... The Macedonian call. In other words, 
it was there that God showed him the open door. And check out Acts chapter 16 and verse 10. And after he, that is Paul, had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach. In fact, writing about that experience sometime later in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, about that whole experience we just talked about, this is what he said, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 2 says, I went from thence, that is Troas, into Macedonia. Do you see the point? Doors are God's job. And something significant about this this open door into Macedonia that you don't want to miss as far as you piecing together the flow of the gospel around the world is that what is taking place here through this whole Macedonian call and these doors closing and this door opening, what was happening here is the gospel was jumping continents. You see, they had gone every place there was to go in over in Asia and they finally get to the, the city of Troas and they run out of real estate there and you see Macedonia is a part of Europe. And what was happening here is God was opening the door for the gospel to go into the continent of, of Europe. And you'll remember back in Acts chapter 8, God had closed the door for Philip in Samaria. Unbelievable things were taking place down in Samaria. But the door closes for Philip there. And all of a sudden, bam, he finds himself out on this desert road. And as he's out there, here comes this, this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch. Philip sees this as the open door of the Lord. He walks through the door, and what ends up happening is he leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. Now, does anybody know what continent Ethiopia is on? It's on the continent of what? Of Africa. And you see, that's how the gospel spread to the continent of Africa, because of an open door. Because a door closed for Philip in Samaria, but God had an open door over here because through this man, the gospel is going to be opened up into the continent of Africa. And you see, Paul understood that in order for ministry to be effective, he couldn't just, he couldn't just barge on, you know, in the energy of the flesh. He wasn't, you know, this whole thing of, of ministry, it wasn't out him or him out there creating opportunities for himself. Paul, as you trace his ministry, what you find, and we've seen this already this morning, is he's not just out there indiscriminately moving from place to place. No, what you find of Paul is he was he was listening and he was watching. And there was a dependence and a waiting to see what doors God would open for the gospel. And you see, this was characteristic of his entire ministry. That's why when he writes back to the church at, at Colossae, from his, his Roman prison cell, mind you, he's writing back to the church, and in the whole letter, he's going to offer one prayer request for himself. One. Now, if you're in a Roman prison, and you're going to ask one request, what would your request be? I, I, mine would be, oh man, hey, pray that God will open the door to this prison so I can get the heck out of here. He writes back to the church in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, here's how I'd like for you to pray. 
pray that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. Yeah, that's the kind of door I'm, I'm looking for, guys. I know I'm in this prison, but man, there's all kinds of people here. Just, just pray that God will give me doors of utterance here. During the time that Paul was in Ephesus, he, he writes his first letter to the Corinthians. And he closes out the letter in, in chapter 16. And, and he's talking to the, the church in Corinth about their, his, his plans to come and see them. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in verse 5, he says, Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia, and it may be that I will abide, yea, winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I, I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. And, and you see, if you don't understand how God works, and you might listen to all of this stuff that Paul is saying and say, what is up with this guy, man? He needs to, he needs to go to some seminar somewhere and, and, and find out about how to make some plans and what this guy needs is he needs to get a little more de decisive and a little more organized with his life. I mean, my goodness, I will come, and it may be, and, and maybe you can help me whithersoever I go. And I trust, and, and if the Lord permit, I mean, come on, what is up with that? I mean, if I could, stood before you guys and said, now we may do this, and we might do this, and, and then we're thinking that we, you guys would say, man, they, they just really don't provide the leadership that we need in this church. But you see, Paul understood that this whole thing of doors was not his job. Doors are God's responsibility, and Paul understands that. So he says, I, I know I'm coming, I just don't know when. I might stay, I might even spend the winter, but I won't see you now, but, uh, but I think I'm going to stay a while with you. But, you know, and it's all according to what God wants. It's all according to what God's, God wills, but he says in verse 8, I do know this, I will tarry here. At Ephesus. That's where he was when he was writing this. I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Why, Paul? Verse 9. For, or because, a great door and effectual is opened unto me. And you see, that's how God directed Paul in his ministry. It was through open doors. And you see, when God closed the door for Paul, it didn't wig him out. Now, it wigs out lay out of sins. You know, door closes. <laughs> you know, we're crying and we're all upset. And, oh my goodness, what's going to happen now? Oh my goodness. You know, hey, closed door for Paul, it, no, no problem. Because he understood that closed doors were simply God's way of directing him to the next open door. And we need to make sure that we, we learn that lesson when God is closing a door for us, it's be, you ought to pick up your eyes and look on the fields because what He's doing is He's showing you the next open door He wants you to walk through. So He says, I'm going to come, but, but not now because, boy, the door is still open wide here in an unbelievable way. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to hang right here for now. And you see, Paul understood something that about ministry. We Laodiceans know nothing about. Paul knew that if ministry was going to be effective, he was going to have to be sowing in the same field that God was plowing. You see, Paul understood what Jesus meant in John chapter 6 and verse 44 when he said, No man can come to me 
except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And you see, Paul knew that there was no sense pulling, no sense pushing, where God wasn't drawing. And he understood what Jesus was saying in John chapter 16 and verse 8 when he said of the Holy Spirit that when He is come, He will reprove or, or convince, convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You see, Paul knew that he was incapable of actually showing people the righteousness of God and opening man's eyes to be able to understand his utter sinfulness in the sight of a righteous God. He, he knew that he was incapable of explaining so that a person could understand the, the impending judgment that his righteousness would require. Paul knew that the only way that a natural man would ever be brought to that realization and brought to that conviction was by the Holy Spirit of God so that he, so he knew then that he better make sure that he was working in the same place where the Spirit was working. And he knew that that would be the place where Jesus was opening the door. Do you see that? God's drawing and the Spirit's convicting and reproving of all of these things where Jesus is opening the door. And I mean, the principle is so simple. And yet, we lay out of scenes, we miss it, don't we? We just don't understand what it is that is the key to, to, to ministry. You know what God had actually done in the Philadelphian church period back in Revelation chapter 3 and, and, and verse 8? You know what was happening here, guys? What, what was happening here is God had opened to them a great door and effectual, like Paul was, was talking about. You see, that's why they were so effective in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. They had received the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ of an open door. And you see, that's the reason that they were able to impact the world with the gospel in a day when they had no telephones, no telegraph, no fax machines, no computers, no email, no pagers, no CD-ROMs, no videos, no cassette tapes, no satellites, no nothing. All they had was an open heart in an open Bible. And God provided for them an open door. And you see, with nothing but that, nothing but that, they were able to accomplish a hundred times more for Christ than we have in the Laodicean period with all of our technological advances and all of the new ways that we have of getting the message out around the world. Less is happening for Christ now a hundred times less than in a period of time when they had none of that, but what they had was an open door. But you see, Laodiceans know nothing about open doors and are certainly in no place spiritually for the Lord to place the key of David on their shoulders. And so you know what Laodiceans do? Laodiceans, Laodiceans like us, we spend all of our time and exert all of our energy pushing on doors and pulling on doors and 
getting all types of instruments to pry open doors that God hasn't opened. And people will spend an entire lifetime trying to remove obstacles to doors that God has placed all these obstacles there for the specific reason of closing a door, but, but they just keep, they keep hammering it and keep working it using all kinds of carnal means to tr- somehow try to get that, that door open. And they're politicking and, and they're lobbying and, and they're marching and they're holding rallies and fighting for rights and scheming and compromising all the way just to try to get that open door. And if they're not doing that, then they're spending their time strategizing a, a method for for world evangelization. And, and, and they're just sure that all of the technological advances of the Laodicean age are, are certainly going to be the, the, the key that is going to help us to reach our generation for Christ. And you see, as Laodiceans, we don't have a clue that the key to reaching the world with the gospel, the key to reaching this generation for Christ is the same key that it was in Paul's day the same key that it was in the Philadelphian church period. It was the key of David. That's what it was, y'all. It was the key of David that opens doors that no man can shut and shuts doors that no man can open. And listen, if we're ever going to make it out of Laodicea, the promise of an open door this, this promise that Jesus gave to the church in the Philadelphian church period, it's a promise that we must be able to claim. Open doors. It's, listen, it's, it's not a matter of, of smarts. It's not a matter of strategy. It's not a matter of technology. It's not a matter of luck. It's not a matter of being at the right place at the right time. It's not a matter of of money. It's not a matter of experience. It's a matter of the key of David. You see, that's the key. And in the Laodicean age, man, we're just we're just fighting against ourselves. The principle, I mean, is so simple. He's got to open the door, and if he doesn't open the door, we're wasting our time. I mean, we, we just keep trudging over the, the same same ground. And, and we, we've seen that this thing of the key of David, that's the key that unlocks the doors. But if you're ever going to get it on your life, if we're ever going to have it on our church, it has to do with your attitude toward this book. It has to do with loving this book. And, and when we do, not, not just when we believe it, not just when we trust it, not just when we respect it, not just when we honor it, not just when we revere it, but when we love it. And you know what will happen? The same promise that God gave to the church in the Philadelphian church period will be the promise given to First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia, the promise of an open door. And listen, guys, and if we don't get there, if we can't ever get to the point to where we're claiming that promise in this church, I, I, what I, I hope that this point, if it, if it hasn't done anything else for you, it just shows you the futility of it all. He's got to do it. And we've got to walk through it in the power of the Spirit. And if He doesn't do it, we're kidding ourselves. We, we ought to just 
you know, do something that's a little bit more respectable. Mow the grass or something like that. There's no sense sitting in, in rooms strategizing things. Hey, it's got to be the open door. The open door. There's a second promise that that church in the Philadelphian church period received. It's a, a promise that we must receive as well if we're ever going to get out of Laodicea, and that is that He will grant vindication over our opposers. He will grant vindication over our opposers. Verse 9 says of Revelation 3, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. You look at that verse and the first question that you've got to ask is, who are these liars that Jesus is talking about here that say they are Jews but are not? Well, we, we first ran into this bunch of liars back in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Revelation during the, the Smyrna church period. Look, at, look back at what it says there. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. Okay, And, and the Lord is writing here to that church from approximately the period of 200 A.D. to 325 A.D., and our Lord says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And you see, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus is, says is true of Laodiceans. We're rich, but he says, but you're poor. This group, you're poor, but you're rich. And look at what he says. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And we went into to great detail about this thing of the, the synagogue of Satan when we were going through our, our study of, of, of church history. And we, quite honestly, don't have the, the time to, to recreate all of that to make this point this morning. But do understand this, okay? You'll be able to capsulize the, the, the thought this way. All of history is really nothing more than God moving in a direction to accomplish His plan. But it's not just God moving in a direction, it is also Satan moving in the opposite direction to come against that plan. And you see, when Jesus Christ came to this earth in a, in a human body, one of His plans was to establish on this planet a church, and through that church... He would accomplish His plan for the next 2,000 years of what is called the church age. Okay, And we're closing out on that, that period right now. And you see, as soon as Satan figured out which way the plan of God was going, as soon as he understood that the Lord Jesus Christ had come to this planet to establish a church, what Satan began to do is he began to pull together the pieces to establish his own church to counter the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ. It's nothing more than the unfolding of what history has always been. And one of the ways that Satan has learned to be most effective in coming against the plan of God is by imitating the work of God, by imitating the Lord Jesus Christ, by counterfeiting the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to masquerade his work, that is the work of Satan, as the work of God, as the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in those first several centuries, 
He was seeking to come up with a counterfeit church. A, a counterfeit church to come against the church of Jesus Christ. But you see, he knew that it couldn't go by the church of Satan. So what it, he does is he gives it the title, the universal Christianity, or the Catholic Church. That's what Catholic means. The universal Christianity. Now, that's what Satan calls it. Okay, and I'm not trying to be offensive to you. But what Jesus calls it in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, and Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9, is he calls it the synagogue of Satan. And, and Satan knows... You know, back here in this Smyrna church period, chapter 2 and verse 9, Satan knows that if he's ever going to get this thing up and running, it's got to have a system of teaching that sounds like the truth, but it is a falsification of the truth. In other words, a lie. Okay? He knows that he's going to have to take the teaching of Christ and lie about it to make people think that the lie is the truth. And you see, that's exactly what Satan has done all through history. That's exactly what he's going to do during the, the reign of the Antichrist. When he comes in the person of the Antichrist, you check it out in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he's bent on making them believe the lie. The lie that he is the Christ. And you see, being the father of lies, Satan knew that there was one key lie that if he could just get people to buy into that lie, he could establish his counterfeit church. And that lie was the teaching that God was all finished with the Jews. Now, you know, we, we hear that right now, and that seems like that wouldn't be that big of a, a false teaching and, you know, no, no big deal. But listen, Satan would use that teaching to be the bedrock and the foundation of his counterfeit church. And the teaching that, that developed way back here in the Smyrna church period, it goes like this, okay? Since, since the Jews rejected Christ's offer of the kingdom, and since the church picked up on it, the, the, the Gentiles, what that does is that makes Christians Jews, in the sight of God. Okay, now this is this is the lie. Okay, this this is that's the, the, the false teaching. And so the way that this thing starts panning out is if that's true, then the promises in the Bible that were given to the Jew, well those those promises are now given to the church. And you see, once he can get you to buy into that lie, man, the lies that start spinning off of that thing are just unbelievable because you see if that's true then what that means is the Christian has replaced the Jew. And the church has replaced Israel. And what it really means is that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same. And again, that, I mean, all of this, it sounds like, what's the big trip? You know what I mean? What's so threatening about all, all of that? Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Because Satan, what he did is he took that, that doctrine and when he went to establish his counterfeit system down in Rome under the name of the universal Christianity or the Roman Catholic Church, you know what they're going to start teaching as a result of all of this? What they're going to start teaching is that in Matthew chapter 16, Christ 
made Peter the first pope or the first vicar of Christ. And since Christ, you'll remember in that passage, since he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which biblically is a literal governmental kingdom on the earth, and the church, well, you know, it's the kingdom of God, and so the church then, the Roman Catholic church has the God-given right, listen, to exercise control over the governments of the world. Exactly what Revelation chapter 17 says that they would do. And you see, that's how the Roman Catholic Church has justified its anti-Semitism all through the centuries. And that's how it's gotten by murdering hundreds and thousands of Uh, if not millions of Jews all down through the centuries, along with anybody else who didn't agree with the Pope or didn't agree with the teaching of of their church, but held to what the Bible says. If you came against the synagogue of Satan, you know what? You were a heretic. And you were killed by the Roman Catholic Church. And you know what? They felt that they were doing God a favor... By, by persecuting and by, by torturing Bible-believing Christians for, for coming against the kingdom of heaven on the earth because that's us. Because Peter has those keys, you know, and he's our first pope. And, and man, it's just come down through, through the centuries that way. And, and we do have authority on the earth. And you see, that was what was going on all during the Dark Ages, all through the Thyatira and Sardis church periods. You see... You start understanding all of that, and then you begin to understand what Jesus is saying in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9 when he talks about the synagogue of Satan. And and look again at the promise of vindication over the opposers. It was given to the church in the Philadelphian church period. In verse 9, look at it again. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Again, that's the Roman Catholic Church. Behold, I'll make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. And you know what that is? That's people trapped in Satan's web of the Roman Catholic Church having their eyes opened to the true saving faith of the gospel. The fact that those that they called heretics were really the beloved children of God. And it's Roman Catholics bowing their knees before an open Bible, being held by a Bible believer as he's winning them to Christ. You see, that's the vindication of the opposers that we need in the Laodicean age. Hey, we're not Catholic bashers here. We love Catholics. What what this church needs? Hey, we, we better know. We better know who they are. And it ought to it ought to grieve our hearts that they are trapped in that, that, that system. Listen, folks, nearly one billion people on this planet this morning 
are trapped in Satan's web in the synagogue of Satan thinking it is going to be that church that is going to get them to heaven. They don't have a clue as to what Jesus calls that system that goes by the name the universal Christianity. And listen, they they oppose us. They think we're all wet. And Jesus says, you know what? If you get the key of David, you know what will happen? You'll start winning those people to Christ. Those will be the very people that you sit with an open Bible and they bow their head and they bow their knee to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Can I ask you this? How many of you, and just just us here, how many of you that are in this room this morning were saved out of a Roman Catholic background? Would you raise your hand? In fact, would you be highly, would you just stand right now? Let's just see this. If you were saved out of a Roman Catholic background, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But you know what? It ought to be a lot more. It ought to be a lot more. And it could be. It could be. If we can claim the promise that the Philadelphian church period had. You know what is so cool about the Philadelphian church period? The Roman Catholic church lost its grip and for a period of almost 400 years that church didn't have nothing nothing it lost the stronghold because of that promise right there now now we know now listen real carefully we know the church of the antichrist According to Revelation 17 and 18, this is, again, this is not Catholic bashing. I I hope if you're here this morning and you're hearing all this synagogue of Satan stuff, I I hope that what you're hearing is that our desire is not to to yell at them, not to be mad at them. Man, we're grieved at the fact that Satan is holding them captive in that system. We desperately want to, to see them come out. But now listen. There is no doubt about the fact the church of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is the Roman Catholic Church. You see, that's why we have such a hard time with all the denominations trying to go back to mama right now. That's why we want to make sure that we hold fast to the sound words so that we don't find ourselves making a mistake that most fundamental people are are making on this planet right now. We know what system he's going to use. There's no doubt about that. We're not going to stop it. We're in Laodicea. But we're here. We live in Tuscarawas County. And we may not stop that move of Satan to set his Antichrist in the Roman Catholic Church. We won't stop that. 
But I'll just tell you this. God can use this church if we'll just become what He wants us to be and allow Him to let this book be the open door. And I'll tell you this. I do believe we can reach Roman Catholics by the scores, by the hundreds, and by the thousands. In Tuscarawas County and wherever we go around the world, you know why I believe that? Because that's the promise given to Philadelphia. And what we're talking about here is getting out of, getting out of Laodicea. And having a Philadelphian existence. And Philadelphians didn't hate Catholics. They loved them. And that's what we want to be. People that are reaching Roman Catholics for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to have the time this morning to go to the, the next point in the outline. It's it's too rich to to try to just breeze through. But if you're here this morning, you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, maybe you came here and you're you're a Roman Catholic this morning. Listen, I, I want you to I want to make sure that you understand that it is no accident that God brought you here this morning. And, and I, I pray with all of my heart, even now. And what God will do is He'll take the truth that we've talked about here this morning and show you that the system of religion that you're trusting is just that. It is a system of religion. It's not what Jesus came to this planet to give to us. The only way that a person knows Jesus Christ and has the promise of eternal life, it's not through a church, it's not through baptism, it's not through a man, it's not through a system. It is through Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And anything that you want to do to add to Jesus Christ diminishes the power of Christ to save you. Including a church, including works of baptism or any other human work. It is coming to Christ and Christ alone and what He came to this planet to provide for you. And I'm sure that there are people that are in this room this morning. There's Roman Catholics. There's people who are of other denominations. There are people who are of no denomination. But if you're here this morning and never received the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know we are living in the last of the last days. The time is short. And the Lord wants to save you. But in your lost condition, as a sinner, you're separated from Him. Your only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ.